0: Those of you that uh, know me know that I love to sing, and it's like mornings like this that I have to watch myself because I'm like, man, I'm not going to have a voice left if I keep <laughs> cranking it out. It's kind of fun to be in the front because nobody hears me. I can just shout at the top of my lungs. I'm not worried about what other people think. It's all drowned out by the, by the sound anyway. So, um, Well, the past uh, three weeks, we've been following um, the final days, uh, the final leg of Jesus' ministry as he set his course towards Jerusalem. And all the talk about the kingdom of God that we've really been discussing uh, for the whole school year was seemingly, at least into the eyes of the disciples and the others that were around Jesus at the time, it all seemed like it was coming to a crashing halt. As an innocent man, a friend, a king, the Savior Jesus was being nailed to a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And all of the events that Jesus said would come to pass were being played out with gut-wrenching accuracy. The betrayal, the arrest, the conviction, the beatings, and finally, death. And as we've mentioned throughout this series, all of this was terribly troubling, terribly confusing for the followers of Christ. None of it made any sense. To them, nothing that happened on that day in Jerusalem seemed to be the building blocks of creating this new great kingdom reality. So what do we do when all that is going on around us doesn't seem to make sense and we're screaming out for an explanation but none can be found or at least none that satisfy us in the moment. That's kind of what we've been talking about. And as we journeyed with Jesus through his last final disturbing weeks on earth. We've also been taking a look back at the book of the Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's a book that really kind of addresses some of these big troubling questions that we have in life about how how do we learn to interact with God? How do we learn to interact with others when nothing seems to be making sense? And it's been a bit of a roller coaster, as we've talked about. The author of Ecclesiastes really writes from two perspectives. On the one hand, sometimes he's wearing the hat of the skeptic uh, in his day, kind of taking a look at life um, apart from God. A lot of times he points out that he uses the phrase under the sun we've talked about. Um, That perspective, under the sun, means apart from God, apart from any sense of eternity, any uh, purpose um, or, or ultimate meaning. And he said last week, as we looked in in chapter 4, he said that that life, life under the sun, was filled with injustice. It was filled with oppression. It was filled with chance. Life with a temporal perspective, where all you have is the moment that you're living in, and that's really all you can see, the writer says. It can be really unjust, really kind of cruel at times. And it can appear like the oppressors of the world have the upper hand. As the author put it also, he said, men and women are trapped by evil times that fall upon them unexpectedly. Last week, I also shared a story with you about uh, a cousin of mine named Jason who, when he was 16, uh, came and moved in with my mom and I. Um, we kind of became his caretakers. Uh, he had brain cancer, and it had it, it already happened to him once when he was 12, and it came back. And so we kind of shared the last uh, months of his life with him and I talked about the moments uh, you know leading up to, um, to his death where I uh, spent time kind of trying to uh, share the gospel with him under those really difficult circumstances knowing that this was probably the first time that he ever really had heard much about Jesus and I talked about just some of the questions that he asked about God and how it was extremely difficult for me to know what to say. Many of us have been in those places with people, uh, with events, situations where it doesn't seem to make sense. And um, a lot of times during those times, it can lead us to question God's goodness and what are his intentions in this world. And all along during this time, I've been kind of trying to point us to scriptures that encourage us to engage God in those moments when things don't make sense, to to lean into that time, that trouble, to go to God, to lean into Him, and just be honest. Be honest with whatever it is we're feeling at the time, whatever questions we might have with anger or whatever emotions might be coming out of us. We need to grow in our ability uh, to engage God and, and to engage with others when life throws us or the people around us some, some curveballs that just kind of devastate us. And I hope that this time that we've been spending in this, devoid of a lot of simple answers, I hope it's been beneficial for you, or maybe in the future. Well, every day, at least if we pay any attention to the news at all, we see glaring examples of injustice and oppression and random tragedies like earthquakes and tsunamis going on in our world around the clock. The evil seems to be ceaseless and kind of unrelenting. And many wonder why God, if there is one, isn't intervening more. Why he isn't doing more to stop some of the stuff that's going on. Is he ambivalent to human suffering? Is he indifferent? Is he just too distracted by doing other things that we can't see? Or is he actually cruel? And many people in the Bible, and we looked at some of those folks Last week, and especially the writers of the book of Psalms, they were bold enough to ask God some of those very questions. And I think it's important for us, before we dive into our text today, to wrestle for a moment about the character and the nature of God. What is it that we believe about Him? Because what we believe about Him is going to shape our view of Him, help us make some sense of what's truly going on in this world this messed up world that we live in. And so for me, I think it's important to go back to the very beginning and take a look at what was God trying to do from the start. And in the very beginning of the Bible, it says that God creates this perfect world. And he, he, he's inside that perfect world. He sets Adam and Eve. And it's a beautiful place. It's called the Garden of Eden. It's free from sin. And it's a place of pure and genuine relationship between God and man, and man and woman. It's an earth without blemish, an earth without decay, an earth where there were no natural disasters, no tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. And in the midst of that paradise, he sets humanity. And in an amazingly gracious offer, he gives us the opportunity to choose whether or not to obey or disobey his commands. And we kind of know how that all turned out, right? And because of our lust for power and control and knowledge, we sinned. And it set off this chain reaction that continues to play out all around us day after day on a moment-by-moment basis. And in Genesis 3, God goes to Adam and Eve and he tells them, hey, there's going to be some consequences for your actions. He says to Eve, childbearing now is going to be painful he says to Adam, he says, that ground that you work now, is it's going to produce thorns and thistles. That's a hard word to say. I had to practice that a lot. Thistles, you know. Life is going to be tough. And he said that there would be death. And murder enters the scene. One chapter later, when one of Adam and Eve's sons kills the other. And you can see the, the decline of morality just whew, start to go quick. As you keep reading the progression of the human story in Genesis and in the books after that, you see shocking examples of bitterness and jealousy and deceit, unfaithfulness, and many other things that just kind of strike a chord with us because we see it in our own human nature. So with the understanding in place that by free will, we have chosen to disobey God, and because of that, it wrecks relationships And because now there's a reality that we're all going to die, diseases ravage our bodies. Because the ground is cursed, there are now things like earthquakes and tornadoes and various other natural disasters that just kind of jump up and destroy life and destroy property in catastrophic ways. We have to be careful about what we credit to God and what is just a reality, the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world. Because you see, I believe that God didn't give my cousin cancer. And I don't believe that God causes planes to crash or cars to wreck. I don't think he causes earthquakes or wars. Our choice as humans to want more than what God was offering has brought this devastation on us. God cannot intervene and save everyone from death. He can't reach down and and, and keep every tragic accident from happening on the roads. He can't heal every broken heart. He can't stop every natural disaster because that would be a violation of our free will. So the hard question then becomes is why does he choose to insert himself in some situations? Why does he heal one person but not the other? Why, when there is a car wreck, does one person live and the other person die? Why does the tornado hop over one house, go down the road, and then destroy the one after it? I don't know. (laughs) Sorry if you thought I was going to unlock the mystery this morning. But I do know this, is when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus healing the blind and the lame, raising some people from the dead, but he didn't do it to everybody. He was choosy for whatever reason. And the fact that we know that we live in this broken world creates in all of us this longing for for ultimate healing and for wholeness and for restoration and for rightness, which is exactly what God says that he will establish one day. When the kingdom we've been talking about comes in its full glory, God says that He will make everything right and that there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more suffering. And the Bible tells us also that in the meantime, that God is close to the brokenhearted and He weeps and He cries for the lost, the poor, and the suffering. And so there's a delicate balance that we're going to talk about today, a posture that we have to take when we come to the throne of God with our questions and with our trouble. And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to describe that posture today, and and, uh, the posture that we're going to have to take if we're going to really engage God in the ups and downs of life. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. It's page 466 in your pew Bibles. Page 466. And again, the author is, is switching hats on us. Okay, so he's leaving the skeptic's hat behind in chapter 4, and he's coming at us today with his God-fearing hat back on. So you have to pay attention to the shift there. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So in light of all that we've been discussing the past few weeks, What stands out to you uh, in the writer's advice there, those first two verses of chapter 5? Take in context everything that we've kind of been talking about. What stands out to you about the posture we should have the author author, uh, encourages us with today? Kendra, yeah. I'm sorry, say it again. Okay, yeah, when we come to him with our, our pain, uh, that we should come to listen uh, instead of just to, to talk. What else, Stacy? Well, he makes all these observations about everything under the sun, but here he talks about God is in heaven and you on earth, so you're under the sun, so your understanding is limited. Okay, yeah, he says God is in heaven, we're on earth, our understanding is limited, okay. Anything else? Yeah, Randy? Okay. The empty can rattles the most, and if you can't improve on silence, don't. That's good. (laughs) You got a prophet over here on the side. That's good stuff. Anything else? Those are good observations. Good observations. He starts off with this phrase guard your steps. And the language there is, is telling us to exercise great care, consider wisely how we approach God, realize whose presence we're in, who it is that we're talking to, give him the proper respect that he deserves. And as I wrote that, I, wondered, I wonder how often we consider whose presence we're in when we come here on Sunday morning. When we come to church, is there a sense that we are entering into a holy and righteous and just presence of God? Are we conscious of that as we come and we worship? God's word tells us that that he does not delight in our sacrifices. He doesn't delight in our praise. He doesn't delight in our tithes. He doesn't delight in our service if our heart's not in the right place. King David talked about that reality in Psalm 51. Reminds us of what God is looking for It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. That's what God is looking for. He desires a humble heart to approach him, a person who realizes that they are broken and in need of him. That's the posture he wants us to take. And I love the second part of verse 1, which continues to talk about our posture in the presence of God. He says, go near to listen you know, it's okay to question God and, and to ask him, you know, what, what, is, what are you doing in my life? I don't, I don't understand it. But he says, when you do that, go near to, to hear what he has to say. You know, there's a lot of people, I think, in life that want to challenge God, that want to complain to God, that want to blame to God about things, but then they don't want to hear what he's got to say back. And sometimes I can be there because I know that what he's going to say back is probably going to be like, you need to shut up and, you know. and realize who you're talking to, right? Because there's probably something I need to learn. But I think we need to ask that. Are we really interested in hearing what he has to say? Because God wants us to seek answers. He wants us to seek answers in his word. He wants us to get godly counsel from other people. Our posture should be that of a learner. Not so quick to speak. Even when things don't make sense. And I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person, especially younger in my life, but even today, uh, whose mouth, especially in terms of speaking hastily or too quickly before I've got all the information, tends to get me in a lot of trouble. And I've said things that if I had just waited a little while, maybe gotten a little more details, a little more information. Because then maybe I would have decided and really kind of evaluated whether it was worth having an an argument over and and really seeking God to see whether He might speak to me and have some additional insight into me, into that situation, I think probably could have I could have avoided a lot of pain that way. And it's one thing if we speak like a fool before a fellow man. It's another thing if we speak like a fool before the Creator of the universe. And we see examples of foolish talk with God throughout the Bible. After Jesus tells his disciples for the first time, we looked at these verses a couple weeks ago, he tells them for the first time in Mark chapter 8, hey, I am going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, you know, all these things are going to happen. I'm going to be arrested and beaten and killed and all that stuff. In Mark chapter 8, it, it says that Peter takes Jesus aside and it says that Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus. Now, I don't know what he said, but I imagine it's something like, hey, Jesus, you know that plan you just told us about? That's a dumb plan, and that's not going to work. You want to start a kingdom, but then you're going to go and die? You need to go back to the drawing board. I don't know who's giving you advice here, but that story's not going to play out there with your followers. You're going to start to lose some favor pretty quick, okay? So let's, let's get a new plan, and this is how Jesus replies to Peter. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So in other words, he's saying, Peter, you don't have any idea what you are talking about. So just shut up. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter twenty-four. Page 735. I'm still getting used to saying the, the phrase shut up because it was so al- disallowed at my house with children for so long. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe it was a good thing. Who knows? Luke chapter 24. I want to set the stage for you here. It's this, this a story that we've looked at several times over the years. It's on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it had been the Passover feast, and so Jews had been flooding into Jerusalem. And at the beginning of that week, Jesus had rode in on the donkey, and the people had lined the streets, and they had yelled, Hosanna, and here comes our king, and they think that this is going to be the week that Jesus really unleashes, you know, and and opens up a can on the Romans. You know, it's going to be awesome. And by the end of the week, (laughs) he's up on a cross, and he's dead, and and he's in a tomb, And these these two disciples from Emmaus, it's a town about seven miles from Jerusalem, on that Sunday morning, they're walking back home and they're talking about all that's gone on. And the resurrected Jesus appears with them, but they don't know it's him. And they have this conversation. We're going to start in verses 15. It says, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, "'One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, "'Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem "'and do not know the things that have happened there in these days?' "'What things?' he asked. "'About Jesus of Nazareth.' "'Nah, Nazareth,' they replied. "'He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. "'The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, "'and they crucified him. "'But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. "'And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place.' In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He says to them, How foolish you are. I wonder how many times God has thought that about me. How foolish you are, Bob. Is he opening his mouth again? Would somebody please shut him up? What is he saying? Jesus is saying to these two followers guys didn't I tell you this was going to happen and then I delivered on it I mean I told you exactly what was going to go down and in the end I rose from the dead and people have gone and seen that I'm not there, a lot of people and, and you want to ask the question and say oh, man, man we were really hoping Jesus might be something kind of amazing I don't know Jury's still out. And he says, man, where's your faith? You know, if we believe in a holy and just and righteous God, a loving God who gives us the ability to freely choose whether to obey or disobey, then we have to understand something about him. And Stacy mentioned it in her comment a minute ago. The writer in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says that God is in heaven and we are on earth. And he's not talking about um, a, a, that God is distant, and he's in some other place. But he's saying that God lives life above the sun. We live life under the sun, like they mentioned, and, and with a limited understanding of what's going on. Some of us more limited to others, but I'm not going to mention any names this morning. Okay? Talk to me after, I've got a list. No. God sees things on a totally different dimension and level than we do. He has all of eternity laid out before him. He sees everything from beginning to end. Nothing surprises him. Nothing sneaks up on him. Nothing catches him off guard. He knows the decisions we'll make ahead of time. He knows the calamities and the tragedies that we're going to face in life because of our own sin because of the sin of others or because of the reality of just the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. And the prophet Isaiah puts it, this puts this in perspective when he tells us in chapter 20 uh, sorry 55 verses 8 and 9. This is God speaking. He says, "For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways," declares the Lord. "As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts it's not that God doesn't want us it's not that he doesn't want to hear our questions or doubts because he does want us to engage him honestly but he also wants us to come and listen and allow him to speak and to answer our questions he wants us to take a posture of a learner to come to him in humility instead of brashness. Remember whose presence we're in. Remember who we're talking to. Let your words be few. You see, there's some things that God really wants to reveal to us while we are here on this earth. It's why sometimes when we open the Bible or when somebody opens it for you, God's word just leaps off the page at us Speaking exactly to the situation that we're in, he wants to, to talk to us. And sometimes he uses his word, sometimes he uses life experience, sometimes he uses the testimony and the experiences of other people to speak into our lives and to encourage us. He does it in a lot of different ways. And it's also true that there are many questions that we face in life that will always remain, that we will never know the answer to this side of heaven. And Paul describes that reality in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, this is what he says. Paul says, now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. He says, now I know in part. Then I will know fully. So with that in mind, the question then becomes, has God by creating all of us by giving us life by giving us this amazing freedom to choose to love to choose to obey and by sending his son to give his life for the forgiveness of our sins to redeem us has that god based on his gracious and loving actions towards us does he deserve the benefit of the doubt for the things that we don't or may never understand? That's a question we all have to answer. And my prayer is that in the midst of struggling with that question sometimes, that you would come to God humbly to come and listen to what he has to say because there's nothing that he desires more than someone who's seeking after the truth, who wants to know him, And he makes so many promises in his word. He says, all those who are thirsty, come. Come to the place where you're going to be satisfied. You might not like the answer you get, but you're going to love the God that you can do life with in the midst of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we need that reminder sometimes. to guard our steps when we come into your presence. Sometimes we can get a little flippant. Sometimes we can take for granted who you are. God, that your ways and your thoughts are not ours. Lord, that you really don't owe us an explanation. God, that you are infinite and our minds are finite and limited. God, we will never understand all of who you are. But, Lord Jesus, I thank, you've given, I thank you that you've given us enough, enough reminders of how much you love us. God, your word tells us that you pursue us, that you, you, your desire is for everyone to come to know you. God, that your heart is broken when our hearts are broken, that you weep with us, you cry with us, you rejoice and you celebrate with us, Father. Thank you so much that we have a God who's so interested in our lives, who understands that because of our choices, we deal with painful consequences and realities, and who one day longs to take all of that away. Lord Jesus, we lay at your feet this morning those things that we don't understand. We trust that you want to speak to us, God. Help us to listen. Help us to close our mouths. Let our words be few, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.